That's nice. We're now uh, 10 and 30, I think. We're on our way up. We're on our way up. You hit that 25% mark, that's a turning point. Love my Grizzlies. Okay, take your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter 8. Can you, make, can you believe it? We're getting about halfway through. Now, uh, as you turn there, let me just remind you of kind of where we are in Mark. And, and last time we looked at a, a little uh, chart, and you see it on the top of your handout there, that shows a parallel in structure from Mark 6.31 through Mark 7.37 compared with Mark chapter 8. Through verse uh, 30. And, uh, you know, we want to ask ourselves the question, uh, why does Mark structure things? Uh, What's the point of literary structure? Well, you know, poems can almost uh, communicate their message through structure. Have you ever noticed that? Or sometimes a story can. Just the way in which it's structured. If if you're uh, trying to speed read a book, you know, you, you read the introduction and you read the Epilogue, that's what I do. And, and then I look at the table of contents and I can see how he's structured. And by his structure, I can usually pick up the main point. And Mark is very good about structure. This is not the only instance when we're going to see that he communicates to us through the structure uh, of his uh, gospel account. But here, clearly, he's got a structure. Now, you notice also in this case, he's got a structure twice. Same structure, starting with chapter 631. Going through the end of seven, then he does it again in the first 30 verses of chapter eight. Now, why does he do it twice? Well, because Jesus' disciples have a very bad reputation for being knuckleheads. And uh, so we have to have things not only taught us, but emphasized to us. One of my son's basketball coaches told me one time, kids don't get what you teach. They get what you emphasize. And, you know, it's the same thing in business, too. Uh, your your employees, your staff will get what you emphasize. So you better pick your emphasis. You can't fuss about everything. You better pick a few things that are really important and stick to your knitting. And so that's what Mark does. He's emphasizing a few things. He's certainly emphasizing something here. Well, if structure gives us a point and to give it to us twice is to emphasize it, what in the world is the point? Well, you know, just look look at that structure there. And obviously, in the feeding the multitude, we're going to see that in crossing of the seas, especially the first time when he he crosses uh, without the help of a boat. <clears throat> then you notice something about Jesus, namely that he is great. And then you also notice that this world doesn't like him very much in that structure. And then you notice that really nobody gets it until he heals us. Do you see that in the structure there? Jesus is great. This world doesn't like him too much, and basically nobody gets it until he touches us and heals us so that we can see the obvious. Now, that's, that's what's in that structure. Now, we're in the second part of it, and we're going to see those emphases, but they have, they have a, another little twist to them, especially toward the end, as we're going to see when we get to the section today, that is really focused upon the disciples. I mean, people like us who would be close enough to Jesus at least to come to a Bible study and find out what it's all about. Uh, So people who are kind of gathering around him. And those are the ones he's really pointing to in this second round, uh, as we're going to see when we get through the end of this text. So this uh, part of it is especially addressed to all of us. Well, let's look at, uh, I think we ought to just read it through to get a feel for the whole. And you'll notice, of course, this entire section goes through verse 30, but we won't get that until, until next week. But we're going to go through... Verse 21, 
And uh, basically, you know, the, the title of what we're dealing with today is, do you still not understand? Let's look at this. Uh, verse one, chapter eight. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of this discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? <laughs> Don't feel bad. We're right in the boat with those other guys. Now, what we're going to pick up in these first ten verses is that Jesus demonstrates compassion toward all people. He says, I have compassion for these people. Now, we've seen before this word compassion, unlike our word for compassion, which says someone has a, a tender heart towards someone. This says his guts go out. It's from your, your bowels. So it, his, and he feels it down in here deeply, this almost physical pain and agony for the poor and the lonely and the distressed. And when you and I go out among crowds of people or you get in a city and you're in the subway, usually when we are in your airport and you're walking uh, down these crowded halls in Atlanta airport and you think, good grief for these people, get out of here. I need some space to operate. Uh, that's why we think about crowds. They're a nuisance. Uh, and Jesus is just the other way. When he looks at a crowd, his, his heart or his bowels go, go out to them. He's deeply compassionate for them. And, you know, I just suggest that you think about that. Some of you will be traveling today. Some of you later on next week. 
And when you go to these crowded places, would you just try to think how Jesus would think about that crowd? It's hard to imagine. When he sees the crowds, uh, he consistently saw them as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, cast down, not cared for. And he wanted them to have care. Uh, you know, being in India recently, just millions and millions of people everywhere, crowded. You can't ever get away from people. And uh, just thinking about how dearly Jesus loves every single one of them and has provided an atonement for anybody in this world who will put their trust in him. That's the way he is. He's just deeply, deeply compassionate. And the disciples really didn't understand it until later how much he really cared, both for them uh, and for the people around them. But you'll notice here in these first four verses, you get the circumstances. And I think if you're going to compare the feeding of the 4,000 with the feeding of the 5,000, you'll notice a few little differences. Uh, One of them is, uh, first of all, here we are Jew and Gentile. And the reason I say this is, if you'll look in verses 1 through 4, you'll pick up several phrases that hint at it. Uh, He says, another large crowd gathered. So it's a large crowd. And in that part of the world, as we have seen, Galilee was sort of a crossroads. Uh, because you were near the land of the Gentiles. It was right on the border. And so it's kind of like being in uh, southern Texas. You know, it's Hispanic and it's Anglo. It's both. And so that's what it was like to be in Galilee. It's right on the border there. It's Gentile and Jew. Here's a large crowd. But also, he says they've been following him for three, day and three days and they've come a long distance. Where has he been the past three days? Well, we know where he's been. He's been over in the land of the Decapolis, which is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee with the Gentiles. That means... A lot of those people, they just wouldn't let go of him. They wouldn't let him out of their sight. They followed him everywhere for three days. They were away from their home. They didn't have anything to eat. So they'd been following him to to this remote place, which uh, may very well have been on the side of the Gentiles. We don't know exactly where this place was. So it it speaks of... uh, uh, of having a good number of Gentiles. So it's a mixed crowd. Where does the 5,000 seem to, seem to be more of a Jewish crowd? So here he's showing his compassion in a sense for the world. So he's ratcheting it up. You know, he starts with the 5,000, which is probably largely a Jewish crowd, very Jewish language and so on. Here it looks as though he's, he's got the stragglers from the Gentile world with him. And we've got to remember Jesus cares about every nation in the world. That's the reason that if you become a serious Christian, if you're really going to follow Jesus, you've you got to get your almanac out. Because that's, that's what he loves, the people on every square inch of this world. And so you've got to begin to study the world. You can't avoid it if you're following Jesus because he's going to take you to the world. That's what he's showing the disciples here. My deep compassion is not just for the house of Israel. My deep compassion is not just for the church. Now, he has a deep compassion for Israel. God has a profound compassion, a unique compassion for the church. But his compassion is so large, it goes beyond the church. So let's get with it and think of the church, yes, but think of the world as well. And secondly, uh, we are in desperate condition. You remember in the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples said, well, it would take eight months wages. Well, here they're basically saying uh, they don't have anything to eat. They're going to collapse and there's nothing nearby. There are no stores even if we had money. We can't get food. We're in a remote place. So they're even more desperate. And, of course, when you begin to look at the world, uh, then you realize, you know, our physical circumstances and my little business problems and my little mortgage and my little car repair problems and my stresses I'm experiencing are so small compared to the problems of this world. And, you know, we just don't get out very much. and We don't realize that 
that uh, over a billion people in this world are living on less than a dollar a day. And there are thousands of children who will die of starvation today, which is completely solvable if we get, get going on this. But people around the world are starving, and they are very poor, and they are very under-resourced. And that's one reason why we need to get out and study the world. We begin to understand that we're very, very wealthy, every single one of us in this room. So we see that this is a more desperate situation. It really is kind of a picture of world mission, if you will. You see that Jesus cares about all the world, and he takes on, he takes on their most desperate needs. There is nothing that's beyond his ability to address. Then, thirdly, uh, you'll notice that, uh, that we have inadequate resources. Where can, we, where can anyone get enough bread to feed them? It's not that it'll cost us a lot of money. It's not that it'll empty our bank account. It's just that we don't know what to do. Here you see the, the, the level of desperation and lack of resource is worse than ever before. And when you look at the needs of this world or the needs of Memphis, how long have we been talking about the needs of Memphis? Some of you have been living here all your lives. You've, you've hurt over Memphis. You've had deep compassion for the city. You've tried to do your part. And it just seems like it's overwhelming. It seems like there are not enough human or spiritual resources to get the job done. You feel completely incapacitated. Well, that's the reason for Jesus. And we're going to see that Jesus has a compassion for our city, too. And that even when we feel like we don't know what to do and don't have enough to do it with, Jesus will show us the answer. Let's look at his response. In verses 5 through 10, first of all, he takes what we have. How many loaves do you have? Now, uh, I suppose if, if God wanted to, uh, wanted to feed the world and solve the educational problems in Memphis, he could send angels down here and do that. He could give manna from heaven again, feed all the world. He could uh, just provide teachers like that, like a miracle, and really good principles. And he could put our families back together. But you know the way he normally does, does it, right here. How many loaves do you have? What's in your bank account? He tends to take what you have, meager as it is, compared to the needs of this world. And some of you are hanging on to what you got because you're saying, what's the use? That's your excuse. What's the use? And Jesus will always say, what do you have? And he calls it out of you. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to get your atlas out, and then you're going to get your checkbook out because he's going to ask you what you've got. You, you, you may say, I don't know what difference it's going to make, and Jesus is saying, Let me, you just watch me. <laughs> and he's going to show you something about what he'll do with those few little coins you've got. Uh, and compared to the needs of the world, I know it's small. But he just says, what do you have? And uh, then notice what he does secondly in verses 6 and 7. He gives thanks for what you have, which is what we have. And Jesus just takes up the resources of the church and thanks the Father for it. Isn't that unbelievable? How, how loving Jesus is toward his Father. How clear it is in his mind that everything that he has and everything that you have comes from his father it's really clear to him it's a personal gift from his father to you and when you bring it to the church to give to the world it's a personal gift from the father to jesus and he lifts up his heart and gives thanks it's just an amazing text and you'll notice here it's the same sort of language that you get in the communion liturgy that comes from the scriptures 
you know, that after supper he took the cup and after he had given thanks, he poured it and gave it to his disciples. Or Jesus took bread and after he had given thanks, which was his custom, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, there's your communion liturgy out of the scriptures and that's what you get here. And here's what he's saying about communion. When you take communion, he's saying to you, what do you have? Here, this bread, this cup, so meager, so small. What do you have? Bring it here. Jesus will give thanks for it. And then he'll distribute it. And watch what happens in the distribution. When the bread and the cup go out, watch what happens. Jesus begins to satisfy people. And you find that this little bread and this little cup, it's enough. And he multiplies it. And he does the infinite and the eternal with it. And he reminds men and women and boys and girls that they belong to him. They remind, he reminds them they have eternal life. He draws them close to him and satisfies their souls. Same thing here. That communion liturgy came right after the feeding of the four and five thousand a few months afterwards. Because just as he satisfied the Gentiles with physical bread, he satisfies us with himself. That's the whole meaning of communion, is having communion, intimacy with him, and being satisfied. So, in fact, uh, that's, that's our next point. He satisfies the masses. He distributes it through his disciples and he satisfies the masses. Now, I want to say something about distributing it through his disciples, if we can hold on for just a minute, verses 6 and 7. And we've got to notice that being a disciple is not only learning to be fed by him, but learning that we're the ones through whom he feeds the world. And this really is the point of his drawing disciples together so that he can feed them. And so that through them he can feed the world. That is our intended role in the world. We're called out as disciples of Christ. We are made his special brethren. And then we are given his mission. He's going to use us. And we are to enjoy being used. So that's our mission in the world. To feed the world. Feed the world physically. And feed the world spiritually. So we just get on with it. We trust him to multiply it. But through this all in verse 8. We, we see that he satisfies the masses. The people ate and were satisfied. They were content with what they got. And the question for us, once again, going back to communion is a picture of this. When you get the bread and the cup, are you satisfied? What else do you want? Whatever you're clamoring for, it's beyond what is really helpful for you. Because when you take the bread and the cup, that's what you need. It's the body and blood of Christ. You need him. And you really don't need any of the other things because once you have him, everything else will be provided for. So it's satisfaction that we get from Jesus, no matter what our circumstances. And some of you are in really tough straits right now. Some of you feel like your marriage stinks. Some of you are wondering if it's going to last. And I'm concerned. I really am. I care about your marriage. And I care about you and your happiness factor. I want you to be happy. God wants you to be happiness in this sense. But there's a higher happiness. Here's what he's saying to you. Do you have to have uh, the, the good marriage or the perfect marriage in order to be satisfied? Do you have to have that? Then you must not have understood who Christ is. Well, maybe you missed that one. Let's go back and do this again. <laughs> Let's go back and we had the feeding of 5,000. Let's go back and do the 4,000. Let's see if you can get it this time. Do you have to have a perfect marriage? Do you have to have the perfect job? Do you have to have the income of your good friend? Do you have to be like the Joneses? Do you have to have your health? Do you have to have that? Or can you be satisfied 
with what God gives us that is meant to satisfy the soul? That's the big question. So you see here is a picture of the ministry of the compassion of Jesus Christ when it is rightly appreciated and enjoyed. They're satisfied. These people didn't have all their family problems satisfied here. These people didn't have all their financial problems solved, but they were satisfied. They were fed. Now, fifthly, notice in the latter half of verse 8, he supplies more than we need. Once again, afterward, the disciples pick up seven basketfuls. This is just remarkable. They had seven little biscuits. They feed 4,000 people. And they pick up seven basketfuls of crumbs from biscuits. I don't get it. Except for a miracle. Nobody could. And that's the point. It is a miracle. And when we put ourselves in the business of distributing to the world what we've got, which is really what he's got, and we give thanks to him for it and give it to the world, you just find it starts multiplying. It just starts multiplying. It's amazing what you can do with very little when you put it in the hands of Christ. Now, secondly, verses 11 through 13, if you turn the page of your Bible, you'll see that we have this very solemn, confounding interaction with the religious, the intellectual, and political elite. And what we find out about them, once again, is they typically reject Jesus. And there are reasons for this. We'll look at it for a moment. But you have this profound compassion for people, this giving of himself, which, of course, uh, is consummated by his death on the cross, his ultimate sacrifice for us, this amazing gift of his love. And the world hates it. They hate it. They reject it. They don't want it. What is wrong with us? And here we're going to see an aspect of it. Because, first of all, the, the elite, the Pharisees, question Jesus. Now, let's look at something about their questions. First of all, their questions are insincere. We are told that they came and began to question Jesus. How do we know that they're insincere? Well, because we see that they came to test him. In just a moment, we'll look at that. And we see that 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 request was insincere. But why are their questions over and over again insincere? They question him not only here, but they question him in other places about the Sabbath, about uh, we saw about purity laws last time they questioned him. How do we know that all those questions are insincere? Well, we can turn around this way and say, what is a sincere religious question? Some of you have questions. Let's ask ourselves for a moment, what is a sincere question? Uh, We have all kinds of questions. We can ask all kinds of questions. Uh, As one pastor told me one time when I was discouraged because I couldn't answer all the questions people were asking me, he said, a fool can ask more questions than a wise man can ever answer. And it's true. Fools can ask unbelievable numbers of questions. Questions, questions, questions. And, they, and if, you give them a, uh, if you ask them a question, they answer it with a question. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, you never can seem to get anywhere with some people. Well, what is a sincere question? And for you this morning, you have questions on your mind. What is a sincere question? There, are some, there is such a thing as an insincere question. So what's a sincere question? First of all, you honestly want to know the truth. Not just prove yourself correct or right. That's a big deal. The Pharisees simply wanted to prove Jesus wrong. That was the point of their question. Their question was not exploratory. It was condemning. What's the point of your question? A lot of times men will ask me questions, uh, especially I'm thinking about men who haven't yet decided whether they want to follow Christ. 
and they'll ask me questions. And you can see that it's just one question after another. And the purpose of the question is to show why their confusion is justified, why their lack of decision is justified. They just keep asking questions. And if you've been doing this for a while, you can usually pick it up intuitively. And Jesus certainly had more than intuition. He had, a, had uh, you know, the mind of God. But he knew that theirs were insincere because they didn't want to honestly know the truth. And they only wanted to prove themselves right. What about you? Your questions. Do you really want to know the truth? That, to me, is the first question to ask yourself. Secondly, uh, with a sincere question, you listen carefully, critically, and openly to the answer. You listen carefully. In other words, when you're given the answer, the one who gives you the answer ought to be able to say, now you give me the answer and you should be able to give it back because you listen carefully. You listen critically because you're listening to the answer to see if it is inherently consistent. Does it make sense? Is it logical? You're listening to it to see if it is cons- that answer is consistent with other answers that you've been given. So is the whole story consistent? And is this answer consistent with the whole story? And you're listening openly to see if this story is better than your story. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a theology. Everybody's got a view of God. Even those who say there is no God have a God that they believe doesn't exist. <laughs> they, they tell you this God doesn't exist. Well, which God are you saying doesn't exist? Well, describe the God that you say doesn't exist. And they have an idea of the God who shouldn't exist. Everybody's got a theology, even the atheist. So what's their story? Be open and admit you've got a story. You've got a theology. You've got some ideas and opinions. Hold them up to examination as well as critically questioning this one. Be open to a shift in paradigms. That's the point. Acknowledge that you have a paradigm and then be open to considering another one. Everybody should do that. Christians, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you have to have your paradigm shifted all the time because you thought you received Christ. You got it all. Boom. You got baptized, sanitized, sanctified. Everything's there. And now you're going to just work it out. No, you're not. You're going to keep learning and your paradigm's going to shift. We can look at the history of our country and the history of the church in our country and see some major paradigm shifts that needed to take place. Some of them took place. Some of them didn't. And the church still needs to shift its understanding of who God is and what his word says. So you've got to remain open all your lives. Carefully listening, critically listening, openly listening. You can tell by the way a man responds to your answer if his question is sincere. You can tell if he's carefully listening, critically listening, and openly listening. And that's what it means to ask a sincere question. That's exactly what the Pharisees didn't do. They weren't careful. They were critical, but they weren't open. And their criticism was only to prove themselves right. And the third thing about sincere religious questions is you act on what you learn. If you're sincerely asking, you may not get all your answer, your question answered, but you get part of it answered and you act on what you heard. And that is the way that you learn. You learn Christ and it is progressive. You learn him and you take on what you're getting. You put it into practice and you get more. Jesus said, be very careful how you hear. For the man who has, more will be given. To those who don't have, what even they have will be taken away. That is to say, you will learn if you put it into practice. So be very careful how you hear. And those of you who have this massive amount of knowledge of being in a 
community with so many churches and so much communication about Christ and so much available to us about the Bible. Put it into practice. That's the point. And then you learn more. And unfortunately, so many of us tend to get these huge heads, you know, all this knowledge. But it really is not spiritual knowledge because it hasn't come down to the heart and to the feet yet. When it does, when we become a whole man, now we're knowledgeable. Now we have discernment. And if you're if you know someone that you'd like to go to for advice. Who has discernment and wisdom, here's one reason they do have discernment and wisdom. I go to people like that, too. And here's a common trait among them all. They put into practice what they believe. And they now have learned by intuition, by experience, because they've actually done what they proclaim. And they can just tell you from experience, just from intuition, how they would break down a problem and what they would do about it, because they actually did break it down before, and they actually did it. They did the solution. And they can tell you how it worked out when you tried the solution. They know because they did it. There's a wise person. And that's what that's what's not happening with the Pharisees. Even when Jesus gives them a very clear teaching, you'll find they they consistently refuse to put it into practice. And so they remain insincere questioners. Now, their tests are absurd. What is the test? They ask him for a sign from heaven. Hello. They ask him. For a sign from heaven, let's see now. Chapter 1, one sign is that Jesus fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah with John the Baptist who comes proclaiming, make straight the way of the Lord uh, because he's coming. All right, there's one sign. I believe before chapter 1 is concluded, we have exercised a demon taking over the demonic world. I believe in chapter 2, we've healed the paralytic, which would, of course, fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that when the kingdom comes, the lame will walk. I believe by the time we get to chapter 4, uh, we, are, uh, we are stilling storms. I think in chapter 5, we are uh, casting out the demons from the demoniac, aren't we? I believe in chapter 6, we healed a woman who had been sick for 12 years, and we raised a little girl who was dead. I believe that might be a sign if anybody's got their eyes open. And I believe by the time we get to chapter 7 and 8, we are sticking our fingers in the ears of deaf people and they can hear and they can talk clearly and they've been mute all their lives. I believe there are a few signs from heaven being given. It's absurd. Give me a test. Fulfill my test. Give me a sign from heaven. It's as absurd as the, the customer I once called on as a young man and came out into a clear sky in New England and he says, you know, if God wanted me, all he has to do is put, I want you, Don, in the skies. Give me a sign. Let me tell you what the sign is. God raised his own son from the dead. And there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem that you can visit to this day. That is the ultimate sign that the kingdom has come in all of its power. There is a sign. And furthermore, little ripples of that sign are all around you. If you'll read the tea leaves, if you can simply see the obvious, uh, God has left evidence of himself here clearly. Look at your own body. Is that not a sign of the creative power of God? And how hard we try, how hard we try to obscure the obvious, to obscure the evidence and the fingerprints of God in creation and in redemption. How hard we try to explain away the resurrection by a metaphor. How hard we try to explain away creation by some evolving out of the murk of something else or another. How hard Pharisees will try to obscure 
the obvious things in this world? Are you going to listen to them? Or are you going to stop asking the foolish questions and begin asking the sincere questions that will actually have something to do with your life now and for eternity? That's the big question. And so they ask him this ridiculous question. They ask him this ridiculous test. And Jesus answers them. Now, I want us to notice in his answer in verses 12 and 13 that his answer is, first of all, profound. And the reason I say that is he sighed deeply. Now, if we had been Jesus, here's what our sigh would have been like. Oh, boy. Well, uh, most scholars say that Jesus does seem to be exasperated. Who could blame him? But this, this actual word here is, uh, is a unique word. That has to often it will be used before something of real gravity is spoken by a prophet. It's it's really his readiness to make a profound statement. That's what this sigh is all about. So, yes, I, I wouldn't deny that given the the circumstances and the context here in the story, it appears clearly there's some exasperation with a deep sigh. But I just want to say to you that. Uh, literarily, what, what's being foretold here is something very important is getting ready to come out of Jesus' mouth. Here's the mouth of a prophet getting ready to speak. And then uh, what does he say? His answer is prophetic. Uh, if you'll look in uh, verse 12, uh, he said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? Now, Jesus is being a good Jew. You know, if you have a good Jewish friend, maybe some of you here have a Jewish background, Jews love to answer questions with questions. You ask a Jew a question, he says, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it goes. And so Jesus here says, why does this generation ask for a sign? <laughs> Typical Jew. But look here, he says, this generation. Uh, you'll, you'll find that kind of language um, in Genesis 95 when when the psalmist is talking about the generation in the wilderness, you'll find that language in Genesis 7. When God talks about right before the flood, this generation and all this wickedness. So when Jesus uses that phrase, this generation, it recalls pre-flood and all their wickedness. It recalls the rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness. He's saying that's who you guys are. You are perfectly representing this generation that is that is sinful and adulterous, as he said in other places, that is wicked and rebellious. The real problem is not that you're trying to solve your intellectual conundrum. The problem is that you're wicked and that you're unbelieving. When, when in the text, in the, in the Bible, you see this generation is speaking of unbelief, hardened unbelief. And he's basically saying to them, this is the first problem, that the questioners are malintentioned. Is that a word? I think I made it up. But... You know what I mean? It doesn't look like a word. <laughs> it really doesn't. It kind of sounds like one, but it sure doesn't look like one. Um, now, secondly, notice the questioners will receive no more signs. He says, what, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? And he doesn't answer that question. It's basically obvious. Because they're this generation. And that's the reason they're asking. Because of their character. And then he gives this answer. I tell you the truth. And here's another weighty statement. You know, he, sometimes you'll get amen, amen, or truly, truly, I say to you. 
Here he's getting ready to say something very profound. He says, I tell you the truth. Amen. Listen to me. This is Amen Bible study. He says, uh, Amen. I tell you the truth. No sign will be given to it. No sign will be given to it. Here's the sign. No sign. And this is awesome. That in a world that God so deeply loves and cares for, and in a world where he has left his fingerprints everywhere, and in a world to which he sent his own son, and from which he raised was raised from the dead, he would basically turn to a part of this world who has hardened its heart and is asking stupid questions and will not listen to the answers. He says, here's the final sign for you. No sign. It's over. It's an awesome word of judgment. And this is the reason it's so hard to, you can't comprehend God. He's infinitely compassionate and infinitely righteous. And his judgments are always just. And they are steady and consistent from the day of creation. He's the same God. Don't trifle with it. And there comes a point when in all of our foolishness, we've been trifling with God all of our lives. And finally will come the point, no sign. Lost. Irremediably lost. Don't trifle with a compassionate but just God. And then notice, uh, thirdly, that the questioners will be left behind. You've heard the book, The Left Behind. Well, here's, here's Left Behind. No sign left behind. And he left them. And he leaves them. And that's it for the rest of his ministry in Galilee. The rest of his ministry in Galilee now is a ministry to the disciples largely. And here he is basically saying, signing off with those who've rejected him. Now, we mentioned literary structures at the beginning of this uh, talk. Let's look at another literary structure that we've mentioned before. Do you remember that we said that Mark is divided in half? Chapters 1 through 8 display who Jesus is. Chapters 9 through 16 show us what he did for us on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Chapters 1 through 8, we said, were divided into three parts. We saw that those three parts, with the exception of the introduction, those three parts each begin with a calling of the disciples. Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, a calling of the disciples. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 19 or something, calling of the disciples. Chapter 6, Verses uh, 7 or so, calling of the disciples. Three callings. You say, why three callings? Because of structure. Because he called them in three different ways. And because we saw of all the things that Jesus does to reveal his glory, the greatest of them all is it reveals his glory that men bow down to him and men follow his call. That's the greatest act in history is that the crown of creation... The ones who were created to rule over all of the world will bow down to the living God, bow down to Jesus Christ. That's the greatest display, and that's the reason that your obedience is so important, because the greatest sign and the greatest display of who Jesus is is that you, a king in the universe, would bow down before him and follow him. And we saw that. That's Mark's structure. At the end of each of those three parts, here's what we didn't mention until now. At the end, at the beginning, you have a calling. At the end of every one of them is a rejection. At the end of this section, the first section, right before the second calling in chapter 3, you have a rejection by the Herodians and the Pharisees. 
At the end of the second section, right before the third calling in, in Mark 6, 7 or so, you have a rejection by his own people. And at the end of the third section, right here, you have a rejection of the Pharisees. Rejection, rejection, rejection that ultimately leads to the ultimate rejection on the cross of Calvary by all of humanity. So this is the story that Jesus is being rejected and he is now leaving behind the rejection. He's leaving behind those who've had their opportunity and have over and over again in their folly only asked stupid questions with no intention to listen to the answer and no intention to put it into practice. Now, thirdly, let's get the real point of this entire lesson. The disciples are more like the elite than they think. Here's the amazing thing. Rejection by the Herodians and Pharisees. Rejections by his own people, including his brothers who thought he was crazy. Rejection by the Pharisees. And now look, we're going to see the Pharisees are a whole lot like the world. They're a whole more, more, lot more like the world than they are like Jesus. Notice, first of all, that the circumstances are set because they forget bread. The disciples have forgotten to bring bread, except there's a loaf left over in the boat. You know, so they had one loaf, one little biscuit. Now, gentlemen, does this sound familiar? Have the disciples anywhere in their history ever been in a circumstance where there wasn't a whole lot of bread around and people had hungry mouths? Ah, let me think. Uh, You would think this is a no-brainer. They've been through this before. The Lord has walked them through the rehearsal many, many times. And here they are. Here's the setting. Now it's just the guys, you know, and it's just one little biscuit, 12 hungry mouths, and 13 including Jesus. So now, I guess, what do we do? And here Jesus even gives them a warning. He's going to do a little teaching before they have the opportunity to see how they handle their circumstances. And here's the teaching. He warns them not to be influenced by the elite. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So he gives them a little teaching. Boys, now you got one biscuit. You got 13 mouths. You're going to be tempted to think all kinds of things in your financial distress in your lack of resources, in your messed up life. You're going to be tempted to think a lot of things. Now, let me just, let me just give you a little tip. Before you, before you start this mental process, before you start, yeah, 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 start talking, can I just give you a little suggestion? Watch out for the same thing you saw in the Pharisees and with Herod. What did you see with the Pharisees and Herod? Oh, a lot of things we could, call in, we could put in common. Well, they were all powerful. They were all this, that, and the other. Here's what they had in common. They didn't believe. It's 11. It's the... Yeast of unbelief. Now, yeast is used in the Bible both ways, positively and negatively. Yeast just spreads. That's that's the point of yeast. But here, corruption spreads. Unbelief spreads. Immorality spreads. And he's saying, now, before you open your mouth and open your mind, just be careful. Don't go down that track. Well, how do we watch out? Well, here's some points you might want to take to note. Read his word regularly. Get that in your bones. Read it. And the more regularly, the better. Stay in conversation with mature believers. Keep talking about it. Keep your mouth moving. Keep the paradigm going. Keep the thoughts in check. Thirdly, put into practice what you know. When you learn something, put it into practice. Here you go. You're doing better now. Fourthly, confess your sins and weaknesses. Don't be proud. Don't be defensive. Don't refuse to let the Word of God have its way in you. Here's how you watch out. Those are some some tips we could give one another this morning. Here's what you need to do. You go out of this door. Now, just do these things now. Watch out. Be careful. Don't go the way of the unbelieving Pharisees. Don't harden your heart. Don't be an unbeliever. 
Don't imitate them. Imitate Jesus. All this good talk. That's what he gives them. And what do they do? They start blaming each other. <laughs> Great start, isn't it? <laughs> okay, I had my evening Bible study. Jesus told me to watch out. Gave me some pointers. You know, dang it, the reason we don't have any good marriage around here is all because of you. The reason the business is falling apart is because of i got a lousy staff. The reason our finances are so bad is because our children are overspending. It's just amazing how you can just hear the Word of God and you just go right out there and start grumbling and complaining just like the children of Israel in the wilderness. That's what happened. It's just amazing. And Jesus, Jesus is just, I guess he is flabbergasted. Here, you know, they couldn't see the humor of it, that he had given them seven basketfuls of crumbs and they didn't think to bring one of them with them. I mean, you dummy. You know, who's the church deacon around here? Who's supposed to bring the food tonight? That nobody had a sense of humor. Nobody had any spiritual recollection of the history of God's provision for them. Nobody thought about today or yesterday or four days ago or anything else that Jesus had done. Total blanco. And here's what Jesus says. He asked them eight questions. And basically, here's what he's saying to them through, their, through his questions. Your hearts were hard. Your eyes are blind. Your ears are deaf. Your memory is dull. <laughs> yes, sir. I agree with that right away. Your understanding is non-existent. In the past few days, 9,000 people were fed with 12 loaves and there were 19 basketfuls left over. I mean, you put these two events together. This is a huge event and it didn't have much impact on these disciples in their everyday experience with the little things of life they had to deal with. They couldn't take the big story and bring it down to their hunger in the moment. This is the challenge of the Christian life, gentlemen, to take the big story, the big meta narrative, all you know about God, and bring it into right now. And it's a little point right in front of you. There's the Christian life. It's that little point right in front of you. And this is what just amazes Jesus. They don't get it. You've got this big kingdom out here. You know, send the missionaries. Get this city changed. Let's get involved in politics. What about your conversation with your wife tonight? I mean, you know, that's where the action is. Bring the global down to the local. Now, this is could be very sad except for one word. That is repeated in verses 17 and 21. Here's the one word and you can circle it in your Bible. It's the word still. Do you still not see or understand? Verse 21. Do you still not understand? Gentlemen, do you see what he's saying to the disciples? Do you not yet? Upo in the Greek. Upo. Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet see? Do you not yet believe? He didn't say that to the Pharisees, did he? He judged the Pharisees' foolishness and he left them. Here's what he's saying to you. There's yet another day. I'm still working with you. I'm not finished with you yet. 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 There's still another revelation. There's still some more teaching. There's still some more compassion in my heart for you. You are my disciples. Wow. They deserve to be left right there, just like the Pharisees. But he didn't. He said, you don't yet understand. And the next story we're going to see, yet means a whole lot more than we thought it did. Now, so what? Lastly, relax. Jesus cares for us a whole lot more than we realize. He's not yet finished with you. Secondly, beware. 
You are tempted to think just like the unbelieving elite. You're tempted over and over again. The devil will bring that temptation to you today, almost surely, that you will think just like the hardened elite in the world. And listen, Jesus is not talking to the guy sitting next to you. He's talking to you. He's not talking to your wife or your mother or your children, your grandchildren. He's talking to you. He was talking to them. I'm not now talking to the Pharisees. I'm talking to you, he said to them. Do you not understand? Do you not see? Focus on your own sight of Christ. And when we do, we will find that contentment where we can say truly, I'm satisfied with him. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for these lessons that come to us in your word. We thank you that the story of 2000 years ago along the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee are the stories by which we live. And God, we we are just like the men who followed you then. We doubt. We ask foolish questions. We don't see things that we ought to see. God, help us and have mercy on us. And may your compassions never fail with us. Great is your faithfulness. For just as the sun and the moon and the stars have been put in place, you will be faithful to us. And so, Lord, may we ever learn of you and grow in the likeness of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.